My name is Michael Welch, and you're listening to the Global Research News Hour, airing on radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, on occupied Anishinaabe Akin, the homeland of the Métis Nation, and the historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. The show also airs on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States, and is available for download on the site globalresearch.ca. On the early morning of Sunday, December 9th, the noted U.S. foreign policy critic, scholar, and anti-imperialist crusader William Bloom passed away in the company of family and friends at the Caring Care Hospice in Arlington, Virginia. He had been convalescing at the nearby Virginia Hospital Center from a devastating fall in his apartment on October 4th and perished from kidney failure. He was 85. William Bloom was a leading figure in challenging and confronting what's been called American exceptionalism on the world stage and had authored numerous articles and half a dozen books exposing the brutality and hegemonic crusade that masquerades as America's fight for freedom and democracy. One book in particular, Killing Hope, U.S. Military and CIA Intervention Since World War II, has been mentioned by none other than acclaimed dissident Noam Chomsky as, quote, Far and away, the best book on the topic, unquote. The Global Research News Hour honors Mr. Bloom's life and commitment to the cause of undermining the criminal violence enacted by his country on the peoples of the world with this special one-hour broadcast. On this week's program, Slowing Down the Beast of American Empire, a salute to the life and legacy of William Bloom. William Henry Bloom was born in Beth Moses Hospital in Brooklyn, New York, on March 6, 1933. The son of Jewish immigrants from Poland, he would graduate from Erasmus Hall High School in Brooklyn and then earn a bachelor's degree in accounting at what is now Baruch College of the City University of New York in 1955. Bloom was initially hired by IBM to work as a computer programmer. He would move on to a computer-related position with the U.S. Department of State in the mid-1960s. Eager to take part in the anti-communist crusade of that era, he had hopes of becoming an officer with the Foreign Service. However, as we are about to hear, Mr. Bloom quickly became disillusioned with America's role on the world stage and switched to freelance journalism. He became the founder and editor of the Washington Free Press, the capital city's first underground newspaper. In 1969, he published an expose of the CIA, revealing the names and addresses of 200 people working for the agency. His interest in America's clandestine activities around the world was heightened during his stay in Chile in the year leading up to the 1973 CIA-sponsored coup which saw elected leader Allende replaced by military dictator Pinochet. He would collaborate with ex-CIA officer Philip Agee and his associates in the mid-1970s on their project of exposing CIA personnel and their misdeeds. By the late 1970s, Bill would begin a long and distinguished association with Covert Action Quarterly and Covert Action Information Bulletin. This was a publication with an early focus on exposing the abuses and the activities of the Central Intelligence Agency. Covert Action publishers and co-founders Chris Agee and Lou Wolf wrote an obituary and testimonial to William Bloom on their site the day of his death. Chris Agee is the son of Philip Agee. He is a political sociologist and historian and teaches political science and sociology at the City University of New York, the Bolivarian University of Venezuela, the State University of New York, and Hofstra University. 
Lou Wolf is a longtime freelance writer and researcher, and in addition to Covert Action magazine, co-edited two books, Dirty Work, The CIA in Western Europe from 1978, and Dirty Work 2, The CIA in Africa. The Global Research News Hour contacted them recently to probe their thoughts on the passing of their most esteemed colleague. Chris, um, as uh, as Lou just mentioned, uh, your father was uh, uh, also involved. Uh, you know, with like he he, he was a, as not only a co-founder, but of course uh, his work <laughs> within the CIA uh, and and led. He had a, a change of thought about what uh, what he was doing, and and that's very much the same kind of story that William Bloom. Because uh, he he used to be in the State Department, and uh, and had abandoned that post uh, as uh, you know, you know, moving away from uh, his uh, aspirations of uh, being a Foreign Service officer because of what opposition of what the United States was doing in Vietnam. And I'm kind of curious to see if, if, as far as you know, if there was some um, specific moment, uh, maybe call it the straw that broke the camel's back, that that uh, really moved him. To, uh, um, to 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 finally take that step away. Uh, absolutely, it's uh, it's a it's a complicated story that's full of uh, many ins and outs. But essentially, it boils down to um, you know how he was formed uh, initially uh, and educated by the Jesuits at Notre Dame, um, and uh, you know he 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 initially didn't accept. The CIA's offer to, because um, they saw him not because he graduated first of his class, and, um, and he went to law school and was uh, rejected that after a couple months. And he thought, oh, let me take the position in this um, in this organization where I would end up uh, traveling the world, meeting interesting people, and, and building, you know, of course, what we all thought at the time, uh, democracy and freedom for those uh, for those countries. And so, what ends up happening is that. Um, as he well tells in his um, uh, book, uh, uh, CIA Diary Inside the Company, and later on uh, his, his, his sort of autobiography called On the Run, which is quite a page-turner um, in itself. Uh, he tells the story of how he became disillusioned with what he was doing in, in, in places like Ecuador, Uruguay, and Mexico, where he was involved in doing things that didn't really... Um, match up with what he thought he was going to be doing. In fact, what uh, ended up happening, for example, to give you a specific story you're, you're looking for here, is that um, in, in, instead of, um, you know, uh, assisting those countries, he, and he saw the poverty around him, he found that he was making lists of people that were then to be rounded up, you know, like human rights activists, labor activists, um, the folks struggling for a more democratic society, and um, while he was in uh, with the police chief at uh, one point in Uruguay, he was speaking um, with him, giving him another, yet another list of more people to round up. And he was hearing in the background screams, and he was wondering. He said to the chief, he says, so what, what, what are those sounds? And he goes, oh, Felipe, those were the people who you gave us last week. And um, so he, he little by little put things together um, in terms of understanding what the real work that he was doing uh, was creating favorable investment climates for U.S. multinational corporations by acting as essentially the secret police of these um, these interests. But then, yet there's a little there's more intrigue to this. It's a longer story. Uh, you should read his book, and uh, you'll find that he talks about um, 
uh, leaving the CIA uh, as after Che Guevara was killed, and he was um, influenced by people around him who educated him. In the, and then he went uh, to to the university uh, in Mexico City called UNAM, and he started taking courses there and understanding international political economy. And essentially, he was politicized. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he liked to tell the story of how he was politicized by his uh, fiancé at the time, my, my, essentially my stepmother, uh, who uh, thought that Che Guevara was the greatest guy on the planet at that time in the 60s. And it was also the events that happened in Mexico at the time where he was the um, Olympic attaché to, uh, for you know, working undercover, uh, recruiting East Bloc athletes. Uh, what he ended up finding was that, you know, things like the, the Vietnam War and, and, and um, the Civil Rights Movement and things like this started changing his mind about what he was doing, and he eventually... Um, you know, saw the light and decided to go public. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, well, William Bloom uh, and his, um, yeah, like I think that the year that I saw uh, posted is, is 1967. And, uh, I mean, does he tell a, a similar story to uh, to Phil in terms of uh, making that break, like from moving to the other end to uh, becoming a dissident? Writer. Well, he always told us that uh, what turned him uh, very quickly, uh, well, not, not quickly, uh, gradually, but quickly at the same time, was the Vietnam War. And um, he began going to demonstrations while he was still in the State Department as a computer technician um, in 1967. And, and, and you think about that, this, that's really before computers were in, in large uh, volume around the world and around this country. And then, uh, but at the same time, he'd go to demonstrations in front of the White House. He still had a clearance while he did this. It's amazing. And uh, and then when he got back to the office the next day, people would say, uh, oh, somebody saw you down in front of the White House. What were you doing there? And um, he finally found that uh, it was time that he had to leave. Uh, I think they pressured him as well, but... He had made that decision prior, prior to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important to add here that um, as a precursor to my father's work and others' work on the CIA, um, can you imagine this, that in 1969, uh, Bill Bloom wrote and published an expose of the CIA in which there were uh, revealed the names and addresses of more than 200 CIA employees. So essentially, he was, he was the trailblazer. Mm-hmm. You know how he did that? He faked, he faked having a flat tire in front of the uh, CIA en- entrance in, in, on Route 123 in, in Langley, Virginia. And while he was taking down, and I think he did this with one or two other people, uh, taking down license numbers of people going in and out of the CIA headquarters or out of their entrance to the building. The only people that go in and out of there are employees or contractors. And... Um, those were the names uh, that he identified. Uh, I was quoted in the New York Times obituary as saying, uh, they asked me, were they spies? I said, I'm sure some, uh, yes, some of them were spies and some of them were clerks, but they were, they were CIA personnel, not, nonetheless. Uh, let me just quote something that he, he said. If, uh, quote, if I were the president, I could stop terrorist attacks against the United States in a few days. Permanently, I would first apologize very publicly and very sincerely to all the widows and all the orphans, the impoverished and the tortured, and all the millions of 
other victims of American imperialism. So that gives a um, sense of where Bill was coming from. He was a deep thinker and a deep uh, historian uh, of the First Order. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the, in the 1970s, the work they did together, I'm curious about the relationship between William and Phil and, uh, you know, how that uh, relation, did they, what, what did they learn from each other as far as you can tell? Uh, what kind of a relationship was it? Well, Bill and Phil uh, collaborated when, uh, while he was living in, in London and as was Phil at that time. Uh, after he quit the CIA, um, and I, I knew him there first as well. Uh, but actually, Bill and I became collaborators uh, in a group called Americans Against the War in Vietnam, Americans for Peace in Vietnam, excuse me, and we held demonstrations in front of the White House. At that time, as I recall, Phil did not participate in our demonstrations because he was doing other kinds of work. Uh, but we collaborated in researching what the CIA station, which is otherwise another word for the CIA's office in the U.S. Embassy in, in, in uh, London, and it was a huge uh, facility inside the CIA, inside the State Department, where pe personnel are working under what is known as diplomatic cover. They're pretending to be diplomats, but in fact they're spies. They're undercover officers for the CIA. And uh, so we researched uh, together... Uh, including Phil and Bill, uh, the CIA station in the, in the London, U.S. Embassy in London. And I think that they became, their friendship became uh, cemented at that point. I, I am curious to know, I mean, some of the uh, uh, singular uh, breakthroughs that uh, you would attribute largely to Bill in terms of uh, our understanding of the way foreign policy works as opposed to the way we're taught it's supposed to work. I think Chris, that was one of his, um, his gifts um, uh, in the sense that um, uh, a, lot of, a lot of articles and books have been written on, all, on, on these subjects, and, um, and they're, they're excellent, fantastic uh, resources. But what Bill did was just keep it simple, go straight to the point, hard-hitting facts, listing intervention after intervention after intervention, and it's very accessible. And so in that way, I think that um, he was able to reach so many people. And, and in the wake of his passing, I mean, it's clear uh, by all the, uh, the Twitter storm of, um, of uh, memo memoria that, that, that have come uh, uh, to be, that people are sharing about um, how much uh, he impacted their lives with his books. So I think that in that way, he has a, had a particular gift. He also had a particular gift uh, with respect to his wry humor. Um, and in, in a recent, um, or his last uh, public um, uh, event, which was at a panel that was organized with the Left Forum in New York City in the summer of this uh, 2018, called Covert Action. Uh, persistent attacks against uh, against democracy and freedom, past and present, and um, he, where he starts out by saying, "We can all agree, I think, that U.S. foreign policy must be changed, and to achieve that mind, not to mention the heart and soul of the American public, must be changed." Right? But then he follows it up by saying, "Consciously or unconsciously, the American people have a 
certain basic beliefs about the United States and its foreign policy. The most basic of these beliefs, I think, is a deeply held conviction that no matter what the U.S. does abroad, no matter how bad it may look, no matter what horror may result, the government of the United States means well. And, of course, that was received by chuckles in the audience. Um, and, and, you know, if you think about it, as you travel around this country and you talk to people, uh, that's kind of where people are at. They, they think no matter what happens, that the government at least meant well. And so uh, Bill was a, a great communicator as well in that regard. Uh, Lou, Chris, looking up back at, like, this 40-year record, you just had the 40th anniversary of the, the founding of Covert Action, and I'm curious to know if you noticed an evolution in his thinking. Uh, did he... Uh, did you see anything change in his passion? Did you see anything change in terms of uh, his thought processes, optimism, pessimism? Where, where, where would you, uh, what would you have to say about that? Well, he was ever the optimist, but at the same time, he was very pragmatic in his thinking. Uh, he did not ever gloss anything over. He went way beyond conventional thinking on any given subject, whether it's historical or empirical or otherwise. And so Bill made it his, his uh, hobby, if you will, to, to go beneath uh, the, the surface on everything. Uh, we should mention that he published no less than five books, uh, and just take the titles of them, America's Deadliest Ex Export Democracy. The Truth About U.S. Foreign Policy and Everything Else. That was in 2013. Rogue State, A Guide to the World's Only Superpower. He's talking, of course, about the United States. Uh, Freeing the World to Death, essays, essays on the American Empire in 2004. And one of his books was entitled West Block Dissident, A Cold War Memoir. So you get a sense for his humor as well as, as you know, he never let anybody get away with Stuff. When he wrote about them, he made made it clear where he came down, and always, always with footnotes, historical uh, and and photographs even. Um, and he uh, let, let's mention also that he in his books uh, uh, he lists the country after country after country where the U.S. invaded, and then country after country which were bombed by the United States. And he he doesn't just say a list of countries. He gives the year or years of, of those events. So he always nailed it. In every every facet of his research, he nailed it. I think he forgot to mention Killing Hope, U.S. military and CIA right. intervention since World War II, which pretty much uh, Absolutely. reinforces you. your point. Um, I only got a, a I would few... say that's the best history of the CIA that's been written. It really is. Mm -hmm. Um before I, I let you go, I, I wanted to, to give you a chance to maybe uh, bring up a, a favorite memory, uh, something that will give us a sense of, of the man's character and, and what he was like and, and um, what drove him. Uh, Chris, would you like to go first? Chris? Sure. Um, I, I think that he, he um, a sort of a favorite memory. Uh, well, what, most recently, right, when, I, um, when he spoke on, on our panel, um, he, I remember towards the end he he addressed um, he was he, he had a courage to address 
things in direct, directly on, direct on. And um, he he mentioned um, you know the stuff about how how Bin Laden um, you know uh, told everybody to read his book, and then all of a sudden you know it became a, a hot item, hot ticket item. Um, but then he obviously at the same time lost a, a lot of the speaking engagements that he had had um, consistently over the many years. But yeah, in that sense, I, I I really respect the guy for for just quietly, calmly, in a in a in an almost monotonous way, just simply uh, sticking with his principles and and sharing what he thought, even in the face of controversy like this, um, uh, the Bin Laden connection, which um, people like the New York Times are, are highlighting and distracting from what he really did. Um, but in that sense, I really respect him for that. And that's a, that's a very, um, uh, you know, a, a man to uh, emulate in that regard. Uh, he, he's quoted in in the New York Times obituary. Uh, he was he asked uh, the question was, uh, what does he love most about America? He replied, baseball, Jewish food, and many films. But um, <laughs> Bill was not. Uh, not a, a superficial guy. He was, you know, when you're with when you're with Bill, you always are on your toes because he's he's always uh, bringing up historical uh, history, his, 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 history, America's history in the world, and the and the human costs of it. One of the um, quotes from his book, The Killing Hope, um, he 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 sets up an analogy of the various efforts around the world. To try to create a more just society um, and a society that takes care of all of its people and um, provides health care and uh, education and, and things that are important and establishing a democratic playing field for everyone to partake in decision-making process. And what he says is, is that it's kind of like um, the, the Wright brothers, you know, when they tried to fly, um, and, and there, there are efforts to stop each one of those efforts. And um, so he ends um, his quote by saying, um, you know, uh, uh, that, and then, and then the good and God-fearing folk of the world looked upon, him, uh, upon this, took notice of the consequences, <laughs> nodding their collective heads slightly and intoned solemnly, man shall never fly, you know. And, and so that's kind of the, the place that we're, we're at uh, with uh, these these efforts that are being um, uh, disrupted, and um, I think his legacy will be to to educate uh, generations to come about what the U.S. government is doing and um, and uh, stifling these efforts, and hopefully uh, educating people about um, other ways of creating a more just society. One of Bill's uh, probably earliest uh, contributions to understanding of history was he was one of the first to write about American exceptionalism, uh, which is a term which has come into popular use now thanks to hearing it from particularly most recently from, from Barack Obama's own mouth. And he kept saying, Americans, we are exceptional. We are exceptional. And, um, he, and he was one of the first to write about American exceptionalism. There are others as well, Chris Hedges and others, and Noam Chomsky. But I would have to say that Bill really was one of the early ones to write about exceptionalism and the the, the doctrine of American 
that uh, every president in our in our history, all of us in this audience that you have uh, around the world has heard, and around the country have heard um, the the famous and it's almost verbatim the same thing, same word again and again and again, which is quote the United States is the greatest nation on the face of the earth, unquote. Well, uh, that leaves out 193 other countries. And uh, Bill always said, what, what are they, sliced cheese? And um, so, you know, he was always the man you would look to for an inspiring uh, and, and novel understanding of American history. Okay. Factual as well, always. That was Chris Agee and Lou Wolf, editors and co-founders of Covert Action Magazine. You can find the site for the magazine by visiting the URL covertactionmagazine.com. William Bloom was a frequent contributor to Global Research with a body of work that extends back to the site's origins in 2001. In a brief testimonial, Global Research editor Professor Michel Chosodovsky wrote, quote, William was at the forefront of critical debate and analysis of U.S. foreign policy. William combined honesty and truth with carefully documented analysis. His important legacy will live, unquote. The Global Research News Hour had a chance to interview William Bloom in March of 2016 in the heat of the U.S. presidential election primaries. In this conversation, he expressed his dismay not only with the two major parties, but also with the foreign policy of progressive firebrand Bernie Sanders. Here's a clip from that conversation. I know you've been like a, a critic of, uh, you know, foreign policy in South America and in, uh, in, in Asia, uh, Middle East. But I, I think maybe we need to really drill down on that point uh, with regard to, to Bernie Sanders about his uh, less than uh, adequate positions on, on foreign policy. I mean, what the, the things that he's saying that, uh, that that causes you so much concern uh, that you that you. Well, he, he refers to Hugo Chavez of Venezuela as, quote, that dead communist dictator, unquote. I mean, no one with any pretension of being a, a, a progressive should, 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 should make such a remark. I mean, it's, it's absurd. It's what we would expect from a, a, a stupid right-winger. Uh, and he says things like that. Uh, I've, nev- I, I've never heard him... Uh, well, I haven't, I haven't read anything uh, really progressive on foreign policy. Uh, I don't think I, I doubt if he's ever used the word imperialism, for example. Uh, and, and, and I doubt if he, if, he, if he has said that the the U.S. is largely responsible for the horrible mess of the Middle East with all the refugees. That 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 is a result of the U.S. government overthrowing. Uh, the governments of Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, and Syria, and which is not, not, not quite complete yet. Those four governments, were, and all of them were secular governments. It's very important to keep in mind. He, he overthrew the four leading, I mean, I mean, the U.S. overthrew the four leading secular governments of the Middle East and South Asia. And we shouldn't be surprised that the replacement of that was a, a fanatic, uh, Islamic, uh, movement. Uh, we, we are responsible for that. And he, he, I don't think he, he, he thinks that way at all. 
and uh, he's not been uh, his his position with regard to the the kind of thawing cold war. You don't find that he'd be a an ideal person to have in that position. With, what, which cold war? Did well, you I guess which uh, the the basically with U.S. and uh, Russia at, uh, currently with you know it seems like tensions between the United States and Russia are on the increase, and so I was wondering uh, about uh, Bernie Sanders and and where you would see you know should a, what a president Bernie Sanders would be like in the context of U.S. Russia relations. Yeah, I, I'm I'm not certain, but I don't think that he. Uh... I haven't seen any comment on that, of that kind from him. Uh, um, I, I, I don't expect much along those lines. Uh, the remark I just quoted about Hugo Chavez. I mean, no one who would say that is going to be a is going to be very enlightened on, on Cold War issues. Uh, if you think that a leading uh, socialist activist in the world is, is just, a, just a, a, a dead communist dictator. I mean, it, it's absurd. A man who was elected uh, legally and, and, and honestly about four or five times uh, should be called a dictator. Uh, and a man who, who, was, who was a real socialist as opposed to Bernie Sanders, who in my opinion is not a socialist at all. I, I've written about this. One of my anti-empire report a few, a few months ago, uh, I discussed the question, is, is Bernie Sanders a socialist? And my answer is no. So he's, I can't expect him to have any kind of uh, uh, enlightened viewpoint on any Cold War issue. You are listening to the Global Research News Hour, airing on Winnipeg-based radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. The show is also podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. My name is Michael Welch. This week we are airing a special broadcast on the life and work of writer, historian, and prominent U.S. foreign policy critic William Bloom, who passed away on December 9th in Arlington, Virginia, at the age of 85. To get a Canadian perspective on Bloom's legacy, we turn to Barry Zwicker, a journalist and media critic based in Toronto. Barry has been in the field for seven decades and is currently working on his memoirs. As a U.S. foreign policy critic himself, he names William Bloom as an essential voice. Is there a specific essay, or uh, you mentioned Killing Hope, uh, you know, something that he's written about that in particular that uh, e- exemplifies his work, uh, the uh, nailing it on the American empire, as you put it, or is it just uh, sort of the totality of his work that speaks to you? Well, he has gone about identifying both in the large overarching sense the depredations of the American Empire, but then he has gone into the particulars, and the list is long, as you know, there's Iran, there's Guatemala, there's Nicaragua, on and on and on. And he has written tellingly about those. And just because probably it is better to be specific, and in the writing of so- writings of someone like William, the each specific is almost 
a, contains it does contains universals, and this this re, anti empire report number one forty six, which he heads a collection of thoughts about American foreign policy. So he's been in retrospective mode, not looking in the rearview mirror as McLuhan would have negatively said, but he's in retrospective mode about American foreign policy. And so he begins by going back to Louis XVI, and he goes back to Napoleon and the Spanish Empire and the Russian Tsar and the Communist Revolution and the Austro-Hungarian and Ottoman Empires. He, 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 he just can't help but go back there. And I notice Nazi Germany needed, he says, World War II. And Imperial Japan needed two atomic bombs and so forth. And, and he, he, what, what, what brilliant historical writing. And then he moves right into, in the third paragraph, President Obama standing before the UN and declaring, I believe America is exceptional. So he's right on target. He's sticking to his knitting of the American empire, the way it's sold, the mythology surrounding it. And then he goes into his own historical, which is so typical and, and it, it characterizes killing hope. Since the end of World War II, he writes, the United States has. Now he's got six bullets. Number one, attempting to overthrow more than 50 foreign governments, most of which were democratically elected, and um, drop bombs on people of more than 30 countries, attempt to assassinate more than 50 foreign leaders, and so on. Now, he's, he's uh, sort of recollecting, if you will, and condensing his, his best book, what I consider his best book, and then it goes on with more recent material, such as State Department spokesman Mark Toner, he quotes, quote, Assad must go, even if Syria goes with him, unquote. What a chilling thing to hear anybody say. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, I wonder if Hitler ever said anything that bad, really. And, and he goes on about how war with Russia will be nuclear, says somebody. And Washington has prepared for it, and Washington has, has abandoned the ABM treaty. I mean, this is chilling stuff. It makes me angry. It makes me sad. It makes me fearful. And that's what William did. He, he, brought, a, he brought out these, these uncomfortable, very difficult facts and figures and persons and quotes that everyone should know. Full-spectrum dominance, what a term that is. He brings that in. And then at the very end, uh, he, he quotes someone else. And it's a heck of a quote. I'm scrolling because this was long. And the quote is from Paul Craig Roberts, and it's this. It is more or less impossible to commemorate the war dead without glorifying them. And it is impossible to glorify them without glorifying their wars. And you see, that was written right around Remembrance Day. So William just had all his marvels, he had all his chops right up uh, to the end. And that's admirable, as I say. Barry, uh, as a Canadian journalist, uh, although I know you've been published in the U.S. as well, but is there anything about 
Bloom that uh, specifically struck you uh, coming from a Canadian perspective? I think being a Canadian nationalist is not a nasty thing. It's a defensive thing against this, uh, to, to take into account this behemoth to the south where we're the mouse and they're the elephant. As Trudeau said, you know, when, it, when the elephant rolls over, you know, the mouse gets crushed or whatever it was. Or when the elephant uh, snorts, uh, you know, we, we tremble. And so I've, I've had that perspective on the states, even though I love much about the states and have many friends there and relatives, and I love jazz in San Francisco and Ann Arbor and all sorts of things. But damn it all, it's the head of an empire. It's, it, it's, and, and Washington, D.C. is a terrible place like ancient Rome was. And so I'm, I'm kind of divided emotionally about the USA. And my very first memories of it were strangely positive. And that's already written in my memoirs when I was about 12 years old. And that's when I started to become aware there was something called the USA. And uh, since then, I learned more and more. And the more I learned, the more I was worried and the more I was fearful and the more I was angry. And so William Bloom is the guy who has brought to me to make it personal and to everybody that uh, his country is a very dangerous country, a country that has performed many terrible acts and continues to do so. So he's alive, his criticism in a way, and his criticisms are alive, and he's going to get quoted in my next book. <laughs> that was Toronto-based veteran journalist and media critic Barry Zwicker. In 1999, William Bloom had received Project Censored's Award for Exemplary Journalism after writing an article which made the Media Watchdog Group's top ten list of most censored stories from that year. Following the publication of an article he wrote detailing how the U.S. helped Iraq develop its chemical and biological weapons capacity in the 1980s. It is perhaps fitting, therefore, that there was scant mention of Bloom's passing in mainstream media. In a New York Times obituary, writer Sam Roberts described Bloom in his very first sentence as having been elevated from relative obscurity, quote, thanks to a surprise public tribute from Osama bin Laden, unquote. Even the popular progressive daily radio program, Democracy Now!, dedicated only five sentences to Mr. Bloom's death in a December 11th headline. Alexander S. Bloom is William Bloom's son. He lives in Germany and made the trip to Arlington to be at his father's bedside in his final days. He shared with the Global Research News Hour some thoughts about the kind of man William Bloom was and the way he saw the world respond to him. He was a very, very meticulous researcher, um, put, put six years um, into his first book, and was really like, you know, hunting down every, every possible hint, writing letters to everybody who, who might have a scrap of information on, on the various CIA interventions. And I think that, that also, you know, um, set him apart from a lot of his uh, um, political allies. He was always very, very wary of, you know, entering into debates that reeked of conspiracy theories. He felt that would, you know, compromise his message, which just was a very, very well-documented and, you know, flawlessly documented um, chronicle of... of, um, the, the, the crimes 
committed by by the by the U.S. government abroad. So, um, and that I mean I um, I um, did, didn't go into political history like my father. Um, I'm a uh, I'm a historian of science, but just his um, his 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 devotion to to documentation and um, the thoroughness of his research have have always been an inspiration to me. Um, going even even beyond the uh, um, the 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 message that he was uh, that he was passing on to the world. That's probably not something that most people associate with him directly. Um, but for me, that was really something that that put me on my on my also on my personal trajectory. Now he was very critical of U.S. foreign policy, obviously, and and uh, a lot of the things that he wrote about were things that really clash with what we would like to uh, believe about the way the world works. I am curious, uh, growing up uh, with him as a father, did he ever attempt to shelter you from those realities? No, no. It's it's rather the opposite. Um, it's uh, <laughs> he rather um, imbued me with a um, um, with such a strong distrust of the powers that be and and a certain cynicism even from an early age on um, that um, you know people have to discover this this kind of stuff for themselves and if you like get it to Spoon-fed as a kid, you, you, there, there's a time in your life when you feel you've outgrown it and feel that, you know, um, things aren't as simple as your parents portrayed it for them. So it really took me a while to, you know, um, get back to the position that, that my father had, um, yeah, um, had really taught me. From, from a very very early age, it was really it was the, he did not sheltering was most certainly not his thing. Yeah. Do you recall instances where he was subjected to, uh, uh, you know, public scrutiny, negative scrutiny, and and how he confronted that? Um. Well, I mean the main. The, the main thing, of course, was the uh, the, um, um, the Bin Laden quote in early 2006, which uh, which threw into the spotlight. Um, and he was he was really stoic about this. One thing that really saddened him after after the events of 2006 was that um, he um, he no longer well he still got invited for 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 talks at colleges, um, but. Whoever invited him, whatever student group, would routinely not get funding approved for those for those speaking engagements, and that really saddened him um, because it deprived him of, of the opportunity to to speak with with young people. And my father, he had though he was very very cynical about the state of the world and the state of the U.S. government, he had very high hopes for the upcoming generation. In his last few years, he he, you know, he, he smiled a mild smile and said that he he felt that you know maybe the next generation would be able to uh, to, to to usher in the change that that his generation had had failed to bring about. Do you remember your last conversation with him? The last conversation we had before I had to leave for the plane was about this was um, when all of those letter bombs had been. I was like, um, 
duds had been had been sent out to prominent de- Democrats, um, and they had just um, ar- arrested the man. And we were we were sitting there watching watching that on on TV and, and chatting about that. And that I think was our last conversation. He was he was uh, um, sharp sharp as ever then, and making making pointed comments. So yeah, that was that was that that's the last thing that we last conversation we had. You were with him in his final hours with other family yes. and friends. It's um, it's always been um, when 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 some somebody passes, then who has like my father very very strong um, um, anti-religious sentiment because there's always this this, this this impulse to 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 fall back on like religious traditions. Um, but so in instead in his last hours we uh, or I I. I I sang him some, uh, you know, old uh, socialist tunes. Like um, I felt that that would be adequate. His legacy is that um, struggle against the, um, the, the injustices and crimes we see in the world. That the way he fought that was by um, meticulously uncovering those wrong, those wrongdoings. Um, not by um, speculation or polemic or by ideology, but by meticulous uncovering of the of the truth, and um, to speak and disseminate that truth as widely as possible, um, to confront people with it, um, because he felt that if that this that you know this this sort of enlightenment um, would ultimately lead people to understand the um, yeah um, the ultimate misdirection of well in his particular case um, in the, the thing he did research on MMM American foreign policy that is also not in the not in, 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 in the interest of those it purports to serve um, nor in those it, it, it claims to help abroad, but um, only serving a small political, military, and, and financial elite. I think, and just yeah, meticulously uncovering those those facts and using that as uh, the strongest um, weapon one has um, against uh, um, what he called the empire. Um, and as I said on, in our conversation yesterday, he really had high hopes for um, the, the, the coming generation. Um, he never resigned or became cynical or felt that, you know, his, his generation was like, you know, the great revolutionary gen- generation. But he always had this, this strong belief in, in generations to come. And um, so I think that's that's also a reason why his legacy is going to live on. Okay, um, I'll, I'll just you know, one more question, and, and we can close sure. with this. Okay, um, I'm just uh, wondering what your thoughts are about uh, the the media uh, portrayals of him, and uh, you know, to what extent they they got it right, to what extent they got it wrong. Uh, what sticks out for you about you know media you've seen about your father? And yeah. Life? Um, well, I mean, at this point, I've made made several times, but I think he's um, there is, in a sense, maybe um, too much uh, emphasis on 
on him as active as an activist when I think that his um, his his legacy is is also and just as strongly um, in him as a as a as a scholar in the the, the portrayals I've read um, you might get the impression that these are that the the, the books are basically pamphlets when um, at least like in, 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 in his first two major, major books, these are really um, highly detailed and well-researched scholarly works which uh, can serve as resources even to those who, who don't share his political views. Um, so that's maybe the one, uh, the one issue that I had with, uh, with the way he was, he was portrayed. That was Alexander Bloom, son of the late William Bloom. One more family member who took the time to share her perspective was Adelheid Zoffel, whom he married in 1979. They would eventually separate, but they maintained an ongoing friendship and correspondence. She joined us from Germany. We met in 1975 in London, and he was in London writing, which he said at the time, unpublished books. But that changed later. <laughs> later they were to but he, that was always his main um, ambition, was to write about American foreign policy because he wanted to show all the crimes. What distinguished William in your mind from um, you know, other, uh, other writers and, and activists around that era? I think he was funny. And he was concise. It was very important for him not to blab around, you know, but to really go to the point. And and he he had very, I mean, in a way he was very moralistic, but in a positive sense. You know, he would often be asked, you know, how how do people who don't believe in a superior being, how can they be good people, right? And he would always say, well, you have it inside of you, and there's something called justice. So tell me about uh, maybe some of the things that uh, he, he seemed to be more, most focused on in his, his day-to-day life. I think he really hated any every form of hypocrisy. In a way, he it was very important for him to get his mes- message through. And sometimes he didn't. It didn't matter too much to him if people really wanted to listen. He wanted to be heard. Because it's, it was it was just very very important to him. He writes a lot about a lot of very negative things in the world, and he never attempted to shelter his uh, his son from that. Um, I wonder if that's something. If you have any specific memories that kind of illustrates that uh, tendency. Well, I would see it from a slightly different angle. Because sometimes he would, I mean, we talked a lot on the phone, you know, and he would call me and say, oh, I read all these things, and I mean, it's so depressing. And I said to him, well, then just stop reading them. And he said, I can't. 
I have to know the truth and I have to tell the truth to other people. And it will only change if we are willing to look at the truth. And I think it often helps him by adding a sarcastic or a funny angle to it. But basically, he, he was very, very serious. Do you have any insights into where that came from, the, the, the dislike of hypocrisy, that determination to, to stay faithful to the truth no matter how much it hurts? I mean, is it anything perhaps from his childhood or, or you know, anything that you might have even observed that, that might help you understand you know, where that commitment, where that drive, uh, that tendency comes from? I think, for, for one, it is um, that he, for a long time, he would tell me that he, he loved America. And, I mean, he, he always did. He always loved America. And, but so to realize that the, the things that you're told, that America always means well, and the government, and, and I mean, the world can only profit from America and learn good things from America. And then to see what happened, what was happening during the Vietnam War, um, this kind of, well, disappointment sounds, this kind of recognizing that those, um, Wonderful ideas just weren't true or were full of hypocrisy. To, to see that was, um, really made him, he said, if that happened to me, it, it happens to other people too. And I want to help them overcome their disappointment and become active against the system. Might I ask how your, uh, you know, as a result of knowing him, did, did you any, witness any changes in, in your life, your approach, your perspective, as a result of your relationship with him? Oh, certainly. I mean, when, when we met, I, I mean, I was always political. I was not unaware, but um, I kind of liked this this radical and at the same time, approach to politics. I like that. Now that he's he's gone, and I, you know, I my condolences for your loss. Um, you. What legacy do you think he'll leave the world? Well, I was doing the last few days. I was thinking he would have loved to see what that. So many people are paying him tribute, but not out of vanity he would have loved it, but because he would think, okay, so the things that were important to me will be heard by many others too. So I think it will just, it'll um, kind of, I mean, that's, that's, that was always his hope, that things would in a way snowball, but I mean, at times he, he was not that optimistic. That changed a lot, back and forth, kind of. 
you know, we talked we talked three times a week about this and that and about baseball and about um, chocolate pudding and about politics and about Yemen or Saudi Arabia or I mean whatnot. Okay. So po- politics was a pretty consistent uh, topic of conversation. Oh yeah, always, always. Because I was always curious, because he was such a thorough reader of the Washington Post, even if he didn't agree with many of their political analysis or so, but he always loved reading it for the news. As Adelheid indicated, William Bloom's legacy can best be remembered and honored by reading the man's written works. You can find more information about William Bloom by visiting his blog at williambloom.org. That's W-I-L-L-I-A-M-B-L-U-M dot O-R-G. Thank you for listening to this special broadcast airing on Winnipeg-based radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. The show is also podcast on the site globalresearch.ca. Music was the song A New World from Purple Planet Music. More of their work is available at purple-planet.com. Feedback on this program is welcome. Just email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. We conclude the show now with audio from William Bloom's last public presentation. Here he is speaking at a panel discussion from July 2018 for Left Forum entitled Covert Action, Persistent U.S. Attacks Against Democracy and Freedom, Past and Present. My name is Michael Welch. Thank you for joining us, and please stay tuned for your next regularly scheduled program. Whenever you hear about uh, the U.S. overthrowing North Korea using the Libyan model, we never reminded, reminded much at all about the U.S. bombing, uh, which was horrific for six months. So what is the leader of North Korea to think about this when, when he, he reads and he mentions that you, you've warned us about being part of the Libyan model? Can anyone say in any of these interventions or in any of them that that the United States means well? When we attack Iran in the future, will we mean well? Will we have the welfare of the Iranian people at heart? I suggest you keep such thoughts in mind the next time you're having a discussion or argument with one of the flag-waving, stone-closed minds of Americans. Keep in mind what I've said uh, to to, to attempt, at least, to enlighten them. Thank you very much.